Welcome to Industry Leaders Journey, where we explore the lives and careers of conscious leaders who are making a positive impact on this world while they transform the supply chain and procurement business. My name is Su Shem. I suggest you buckle up because we'll fly high in this journey with a former U.S. Air Force officer. Ross Major retired from the military, but he didn't retire from serving the military members. Ross is the CPO of USAA. Let's begin this journey. Hi, Ross. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you too, Sue. Good, good. So I actually wanted to start with uh, your background before we dive into your that beautiful t-shirt, USAA. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's fascinating to talk to you because uh, you have this uh, amazing military background. You have to tell me why Air Force Academy? How did you get there? Yeah, so, um, well, so first of all, I would love to tell you that it was just drawn to serving my country and, you know, big noble history of family in the military, but the reality is that's not all true. Um, I basically, you know, accepted a bribe from my parents to go <laughs> to the uh, to the Air Force Academy. You know, I, I finished uh, high school up in Oregon at the time was having some really good success playing football and really wanted to go to a Pac-10 school and at the time was getting recruited by them. Um, ended up with a really weird back injury, a couple of surgeries, lost basically all of my senior year of football. And so um, all the big schools dropped me. And so I had scholarship offers from small schools and scholarship offers from schools that had high academic standards. Mm -hmm. And so being the you know brilliant 18-year-old boy that I was, I was going to go to some random small school so I could play football. And so, you know, my parents told me, they said, they said, hey, if you go to the Air Force Academy, you know, when you can have a car, we'll we'll get you a car. And they said, well, we, we don't want this to sound like a bribe, but, you know, that's what we're willing to do. I said, well, it sounds like a bribe. And they go, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, we told you we didn't want it to sound like a bribe, but it actually <laughs> is. And I said, uh, I said, okay, well, it sounds pretty good. Then um, I went out for my visit to the Air Force Academy, and I was blown away. I mean, the second I hit the ground there, they could not show me enough about the life, the academics, the challenges. On that trip, I called my parents. I said, you know, cancel any other recruiting trips that we have. This is, mm -hmm. this is where I want to go. And I'm so glad that it worked out that way. I, I will say just as a final piece of this story. Uh -huh. so, so the parents got me the car. It was a Suzuki Samurai for anybody that remembers those. This is really going to make me sound old. But you can't have a car your first two years of the academy. So the car went to my brother. <laughs> he drove that. When my junior year came around at the academy and I could get a car, uh, they gave me my dad's old company car, which was a white four-door 1987 Cutlass Sierra with burgundy velour seats. I mean, it was just terrible. And so that's what I was, you know, that's what I had. That's what I was cruising around in. What happened to your new car? Your brother took it? Yeah, he kept the Samurai. I got the used company car with uh, with the burgundy interior. Oh so. my gosh, that's, yeah. uh, that's hilarious. But was there any relationship with your last name? Because your parents uh, had this dream to be a major or something. Yeah, that's certainly uh, over the years, you know, heard a lot about that. So I got out as a captain. I was captain major. Um, so I didn't make major. People would ask me when I was getting out of the military, right, and going through interviews. Uh, they'd say, you know, why are you getting out? And, you know, I had my prepared answer. And, and one person said, yeah, 
don't give me the prepared answer. Give me something else. I was like, okay, I just, I can't stand the thought of being major, major. So it's time to get out. He's like, okay, that works. Double major. I mean, it's yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah that's so funny. Okay. You know, I, I for military, I, I, there's something about uh, military. It's really about that loyalty that uh, among people, like taking care of each other, the discipline and honor, all that. It's just fascinating. I guess coming from like a football team, maybe you kind of felt a similarity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I say that I played football at Air Force for two years. The, the reality is I practiced football at Air Force for a couple of years. So I was on the team, but I was, I was never really on the field. But, you know, football teams are generally pretty tight knit, military, very tight knit. Mm-hmm. You take a football team filled with military. <laughs> I mean, it just is the most intense you know, brotherhood that I can describe, um, you know, we would, we would do everything for each other. And it's, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot in, in football world where people will say, uh, practice like you're going to play at the air force Academy. We had, we looked at it a little bit differently. We said, train like you're going to fight. So, and that, that's the military view of things. Hey, we're in it for a fight. Right. And we never gave up. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> So that, that academy really trained you really well. Um, so tell me a little bit about your career in the after school, but you still stay in the U.S. Force. So how is it like working in the U.S. Force? Were you a pilot? No, I, I was not. So uh, my eyes are bad. So I, I never had an option to, uh, to be a pilot. I uh, would have loved that, but uh, just not, not my path. And so for me, you know, if I couldn't be a pilot, what I wanted to do was be as close as possible to the action. And uh and so for me, that was as, a, as an aircraft maintenance officer. So most of my uh, active duty career, uh, I was running flight line maintenance unit. I started out with uh, B-1 bombers, which was a very you know, interesting introduction into the, uh, into the military at the, at the time. Uh, again, this dates me a little bit, but at the time, the Cold War was still active. And so uh, the B-1s at that point, the only mission we had was a nuclear mission. We didn't mm-hmm. drop conventional bombs. It was just practicing for nuclear war. And then I, I ended up my career uh, out in California with uh, with C-5s, which was really massive cargo aircraft. And uh, that was just a blast because every day you could go out on the flight line and you could see these planes are loaded up with humanitarian relief heading to you know Haiti. These planes are loaded with you know military gear going to wherever we were in the world. I mean, we we used to take pride. We we could say that you know. If, if you want to know what we're doing, right, mm-hmm. you can turn on CNN and wherever there's a hotspot, whether it's humanitarian or whether it's war, you're going to see C5 tails in the back, right? Because we are delivering the goods that are, you know, that are needed for support. It was just, an, it was an incredible, incredible mission. Real mission critical stuff. So that's really awesome. Like you had a really awesome, awesome life there. Okay, so then what made you leave? I, I, give me the real reason, not the double major thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it, it was a couple things. So one, uh, I got out uh, about a year and a half before 9-11, right? If, if 9-11 had it happened while I was still on duty, that I have no doubt I would have stayed in. Um, but, you know, so I, I had three kids at the time, and uh, it was getting harder to be away from them. And then there, there's another element in the military where, you know, a lot of promotions and moving up are tied to time and grade. Mm-hmm. And um, I always struggled with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a combination of the of the two. But but I do have to tell you, Sue, you, you, you mentioned, you know, 
having all these exciting things. Well, when I got out, the first time I brought my kids to work after leaving the military, I cannot tell you the look of disappointment in their face, right? Like, <laughs> you know, because in the military, you know, they'd come out, see me, I, you know, get them permission to get onto the flight line, climb around on planes, right? We'd have like family appreciation day. So you take them around in a Humvee, you know, do all these exciting things. And then I left and went into the corporate world and I said, hey, here's my cubicle. Look, <laughs> I got a whiteboard. You can draw things on it. And they just looked at me like, oh, dad, what happened to you? You know? <laughs> That's right. It's oh, like yeah. if you went to like kind of jail or something. And my yeah, like yeah. it's like uh, it looked like your job is the most boring thing in the world. They're always sitting at the computer. Yes. And... Yeah, yeah. Just imagine if it were if it were now, right? I'd be, yeah. hey kids, look, I work in the bedroom. <laughs> That's right. Oh my god, so funny. Okay, so um, I wanted to now ask uh, after the laughing leaving that uh, that cool place coming to corporate world. So what surprised you uh, most uh, after switching? You know, I, I think the thing that surprised me the most was how easy it felt for me to transition. Um, you know, I've always kind of prided myself on being able to prioritize, take the complex and make it simple, um, you know, attack the biggest problems and deliver results quickly. And you do that the same way in the military that you do in the, in the corporate world, right? Mm -hmm. And so it didn't feel like, uh, like much of a challenge to make that switch. I mean, I had the, the usual um, things that you kind of run across, like in, in the military, you're always on time. So when I got out and, uh, you know, it's kind of going to my first big meeting with, with uh, the CPO of the company that I worked for at the time, and I'm in the room five minutes early, nobody's there, you know, <laughs> and then one o'clock comes around, nobody's there. And then somewhere about five minutes after some people started trickling in and then, you know, eventually the CPO came in and then we started the meeting. I was like, huh, this is interesting. So the next one, uh, I did the same thing. I showed up five minutes early. I, you know, I still to this day believe in uh, being on time, you know, yeah. start meetings on time end meetings on time. Um, just something that's ingrained. Yeah, I think you got really well trained uh, and not only punctuality, many other things, the discipline, as I mentioned in the beginning, right? So many other things. Awesome. That's why I think um, like people trust, uh, oh, you're an officer background, then like kind of, okay, you have the seal of proof that you are well trained. <laughs> good, good. But then when you came to financial services, this must have been shocking. Yeah, you are right. That was a big shock because so I, I was in manufacturing before I went to uh, to financial services. And let's say a couple of things. One, manufacturing, they get the value of supply chain and procurement, right? I mean, there is no doubt about it because that's a lot of how we're, you know, they're going to make profit, right? In the financial services world, you don't have that same concept of, you know, direct materials necessarily. <clears throat> and so at this time, it's gotten better, but I, I still think we're, we're lagging. I think financial services really understands the value of procurement and supply chain, right? And mm -hmm. um, like I said, it's gotten better, but that was, so that was one thing that surprised me. The, the other thing was in the manufacturing space, when we negotiated, it was all product and price, right? And uh, product price, and when we talked terms and conditions, it was really like inventory terms and conditions, mm -hmm. you know, upside flexibility to forecast, those types of things. Um, in procurement, we did not negotiate things like indemnification, limitation of liability, et cetera. When I got to Bank of America, my first job was um, 
was basically leading the team that supported all of our offshore delivery, right? So all of the supply chain work that supported offshore delivery was, was what my team was responsible for. And there, you know, somebody was like, okay, here, here's this contract, go negotiate it, right? A, a master agreement. And I was like, okay, well, who, who's the lawyer that's going to be working with me? They're like, no, it's just you. <laughs> Wait a minute. Um, do you want me to negotiate indemnification and limitation of liability? They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, got some studying to do, right? And so that was a big surprise. But it's it's a it's an interesting space. I'd say in financial services, while we still measure ourselves on hard savings, mm-hmm. you probably spend I'll say almost eighty percent of your time as a procurement person on on risk, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're you're negotiating risk terms more than you're negotiating price. The price is actually relatively easy to negotiate. The risk terms are are much more complex. Yeah. It's so important, yeah, how do you measure and th- that makes sense. So that's why we hear often TPRM. So maybe for people who are listening, then they never heard of what that is, third-party risk management, right? Like actually, why does it even matter more for banks than any other industries? Yeah, I, I mean, um, so, you know, obviously we're heavily regulated industry, right? And the, and the oversight is to make sure that, that the banks are staying safe and sound. Right, mm-hmm. because uh, all of our money are, are in these banks, and if we're not safe and sound, then then that is messing with people's financial security. So one of the things that you know has just happened over the years as banks have grown, as financial institutions have grown and become more complex, uh, they're relying more on third parties, right? And so the the regulators realized and started really you know challenging the large financial institutions to say. Hey, we understand you need to outsource, right? We understand that helps you deliver to your customers, but you still own the risk, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can't just outsource it and then forget about it. We expect you to measure that relationship, right? Monitor that relationship and ensure that they are executing this the way that we would expect you to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really what third-party uh, risk management is all about is it's a it's a life cycle that says, okay, you, you start with planning, you identify your risks, you identify your value, how are you gonna, what, you know, what are the things that you need to do to manage this relationship long-term? Mm-hmm. You move into due diligence, right? And so what, you know, based on the risks that are there, what are the types of controls that you need to validate that exist with your third party? You get into, you know, contract negotiation and getting a good contract that clearly defines the roles and responsibilities of both parties, defines all of your, um, you know, expectations from a control perspective, and also defines the, you know, the performance obligations. Then you go into ongoing monitoring, and that's just, you know, continuously monitoring your third party to make sure they're delivering to the contract and that they've got the right, you know, compliance and controls in place. And then eventually when you get to termination, making sure that you terminate in a safe and sound manner, get back any information secure or any you know sensitive data that you've shared with them or ensure it's been destroyed, those types of things. So, you know, that's kind of the life cycle. What, what's interesting to me is when you think about it, it's just common business sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you are going to spend a lot of money and you're going to hand off a very important business process to a third party, you know, you better understand it, perform good due diligence, have a good contract and really monitor them well. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not going to get the value and you're not going to deliver for your customers. Right. It's just sound the supplier management. Yeah, that's yep. what it is. Yep. 
Good. Okay, now let's shift the gear and then let's get into USAA because um, it's actually perfect combination of your background. So yeah. yeah. So I mean, for people who don't know what it stands for, can you explain? Yep. Yep. So it's it's a United Services Automobile Association, um, and it's it's just a, a tremendously unique uh, company. So so first off, uh, we are not a public company. We were started in 1922, so we're coming up on a 100-year anniversary next year, which is going to be very, very exciting. Um, but it was started by 25 military officers. And in 1922, because, you know, there had been a world war, right, insurance companies weren't sure what to do with military members, and they felt like they were too big of a risk to insure. So these 25 uh, military officers got together, mm -hmm. pooled their money, and decided they would insure themselves through this thing they created called USAA. And then that grew over the years into what we are today, right? And so our whole mission is to make sure that we can make our members' uh, financial lives more secure, right? Mm -hmm. And our members are, you know, actively serving military and veterans that have honorably served in their families. It's amazing to me. So I've, I've been a member for, I think, 32 years now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was a member long before um, I uh, became an employee. Uh -huh. And I always knew, you know, I mean, I always knew how USAA was different, right? Like when I called customer service at USAA, I, I got somebody that I knew cared about me. And, um, and so, you know, when I finally got a chance to join the companies about three and a half years ago, I was even blown away by how much stronger that feeling is once you're working for USAA. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when I joined, uh, you, could, you at the time, we went through something called new employee orientation. Everybody goes through it. It's three days, mm -hmm. and it's really to help people connect to what USAA is all about. And... Um, you, know, you sit in these little tables and there's there's a box of tissues there that, that I assumed was there because, you know, if somebody has a cold or the sniffles or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it turns out they're there because people will cry during <laughs> NEO, new employee orientation, because the stories that you hear, right, mm -hmm. of, of things that have happened to, you know, our members and how our company was there for them when it happened and what it meant to them. You, you're, you're hard pressed to find a, a USAA employee who is not choked up uh, or cried in, you know, in some of these presentations because it's just, it's just so powerful for, for what we do. Wow, I do know that. You're right. I mean, I, I kind of felt, well, as you talk about it, I totally don't associate because you just don't think about the military. Wow, the cool. And, but actually, what it means to be in the military is serving your country and actually sacrificing a lot about yourself and your family. And it's true. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I've, I'm just extremely grateful for the opportunity that I have right now. I, I love what I do. Um, and I love the company that I, that I work for. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty, uh, pretty, pretty grateful. So that's a good segue to my next question that uh, as a CPO of USA, I wanted to hear what's your top priority these days? So, so um, several, <laughs> um, I, I would say for us, our first priority right now is making sure that, you know, we are delivering our services um, to the expectation 
of uh, our risk and compliance, right? Mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier, we are a heavily uh, regulated industry. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so as we have grown, um, there's a lot of expectations on how we deliver our services so we can continue to deliver to our members the way that we expect. And so we've had some challenges in that, in that area over the past you know, uh, several years. And we've invested a lot as a company to, to address that and address it quickly. But another element for, for us is just how do we get more efficient in delivering to the businesses, right? Because you'll, you'll hear this time and time again, right? How does it tie back to the members? Well, you know, if, if we're not doing our job well, right, then we're spending too much money. And if we're spending too much money, that has to get passed off into the products that get delivered to our members. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, how, how military members have to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think for a lot of folks that have not been in the military or kind of seen, you know, been close to people in the military, the military is about service and it is about sacrifice. It is, it is not a wealth builder. You're not uh, in there to make a lot of money. And so the competitiveness of our products mm -hmm. are critical to, uh, to what we do. And so for us right now, we know we're not operating as efficiently as we need to, right? It takes too long to get contracts done. Um, we, you know, we have some, we have some clunky business processes. Um, we, at some times, uh, it can be very challenging to enable the businesses to move with the speed that they want, right? Because they want to move very, they want and they need to move very fast, right? Um, but we've got to try to also do that in a, in a way that, that meets all the risk and compliance expectations of our processes. So we're really um, challenging ourselves right now to say, how can we look at everything we do? How can we be more efficient? And how can we really enable those businesses to serve our members? Mm, that's why you are embarking digital transformation and that supports your better, newer business processes. So let's, uh, let's talk about our relationship. So, you know, how we are partnering together so that to help you to achieve your these top priorities. Why don't you tell me or tell the listeners a little bit about your vision for this uh, digital transformation? Yeah, so, so um, we've got a lot of work to do in the, in the digital transformation world. I would say right now, if I were to kind of classify where we are in our journey, um, we have partially automated some relatively immature processes, mm -hmm. right? And that's not where we want to be at all, right? Mm -hmm. we, we want to have uh, you know, world-class business processes that are supported by, by the best-in-class technology. Mm -hmm. And so one of the areas where we are, where we're starting that journey is in a you know, vendor management system, right? And so as we have you know, partnered with, with SAP and Fieldglass, we think there's a lot of opportunity for us there. So in our case, we, uh, we spend quite a bit of money on, on third-party labor, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all seen the studies over the years, right? If, if you don't have a way to ensure compliance with your contracts, you don't have ways to ensure compliance with your strategies in this space, you're going to lose out on money. Mm -hmm. And we could see very quickly that we can, um, you know, just on 2% alone and the amount that we're spending on third-party labor have a tremendous business case that will deliver for the, for the company. Huh. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge, right? Right. Our, our company is, uh, is moving as fast as we can to try to deliver for our members. 
And sometimes with that speed, right, if you don't have the right systems in place to ensure, you know, compliance to your contracts and compliance to your strategy, you're going to end up, you know, on a shortfall. Yeah. Okay. That's good to understand how you come up with actually business case to justify your like strategy. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about our like partnership? Um, what, what I would say is I, I feel, you know, a tremendous amount of commitment from the SAP side mm -hmm. to, you know, to our relationship. So, you know, we've had conversations about, you know, the, the importance of this work to us. And we have, uh, you know, so Stuart and I have a have an agreement that we are going to crush our business case, right? Like, yeah. you know, I, I told them, I said, I said, you know, um, I, I don't want to, I, I guess this is just the competitive side of me, right? Like, I don't want to just hit our business case. I want to crush it. I want to absolutely blow it out of the water. Right. And, uh, and, I, and I need SAP's commitment for that. And I, and I feel that, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I know SAP is locked in with us. So we've already... You know, started the implementation work. Um, you know, we've got a, a steering committee put together with SAP involved in that, and uh, and I have no doubt that we will crush our our business case. Yeah, yeah. We do talk about our purpose and vision a lot, and it's yeah. really helping the world run better and improve people's lives, and especially a company who has a very you know amazing purpose and mission like yours. And we feel like very close to it, right? So it's an honor to <laughs> commit and partner with you guys. Right. So <laughs> super. And I'm so excited that you're going to be, you are part of our uh, banking industry think tank as well. So that's how we're going to shape the industry forward. Yes. So that's even more amazing. Yeah. Okay. And then now, um, actually, I wanted to a little bit touch up on your private side again and uh, because uh, you did tell me about your uh your family life it's, it looks like uh, you had a two different generation of children so you got to try one more time and yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing differently like a second time <laughs> around <laughs> well so so first before i answer that i should probably describe for for the listeners so so yes my kids uh range in age from 29 to 2 Mm -hmm. um, I have a 29-year-old girl who is uh, currently pregnant and due in November, so first mm -hmm. grandbaby on the way. Um, I have a 26-year-old girl. I have a 25-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. Then I have a six-year-old girl and a two-year-old boy. It's it's amazing the difference, right? Um, you know, the with the first round, uh, I was I was in the military and with three kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, money was pretty tight, and it was also a different age, right? So, you know, when it came time to buy a stroller, for example, mm -hmm. you had like three choices, right? And the choice was very easy for me, which one's the cheapest one, right? <laughs> like if that's the one I'm going to take. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to, to now, uh, you know, when my six-year-old, her name is Madeline, when uh, my wife was pregnant with her, we went to Bye Bye Baby. And I don't know if anybody's been to that store before, but oh my goodness, I walked in and was immediately overwhelmed. I mean, there's 8,000 choices of everything. And, um, you know, and obviously I'm at a different point in my career. So picking out a stroller became a terrible thing, right? I'm like, I'm like, well, there's 50 options and, so you know, and yeah. I don't have to pick just the cheapest one, but maybe I should pick just the cheapest one. So so that's definitely, uh, you know, one of the things that has changed. Um, I like to think that I have more patience, mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes I wonder about that. Um, 
last last weekend when my six-year-old threw a uh, toy boomerang and hit my two-year-old in the head, even though I asked her not to, mm-hmm. don't think I did a good job of demonstrating patience, right? I tried to, but I don't think I did a great job of it. I I do think um, I appreciate it more, like the, the, the smaller moments, I get a chance to, um, I think, reflect on that a little bit more. But I just consider myself to be, you know, again, extremely blessed and lucky because my my three older kids, they they love the two little ones. The two little ones love their siblings. Um, and so uh, it's just, it's so much fun to get to see them interact. So I get to see my older ones, you know, grow and, and you know, move into adulthood. And then I've got these younger ones that are running around like crazy. Uh, it's just, you, it's quite yeah. a scene. Giving you more I, I have, <laughs> Yes. And so I will have uh, like my two-year-old, right? He will be Uncle Max in November, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, for anybody that likes that show, Modern Family, like we're yeah. a little bit of like Modern Family. <laughs> yeah, that, for sure. And you're really definitely a lucky guy to actually like two times life almost. I feel like, a, you know, you filled your life and then feeling even more. So that's amazing. What yeah. do you think your... 19 years old, younger self. What yeah, do you think I, he would say to you if he met you today? He'd probably say you're crazy, right? Like, <laughs> like you know, uh, how on earth did you end up with, uh, you know, five children uh, spread out like this? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the interesting thing is if I could go, if I go back and talk to that, that, that 19 year old one, mm-hmm. um, I would just tell him, um, you know, follow the path and don't be afraid of, of what's in front of you. And mm-hmm. never in my wildest dreams would I have, you know, kind of pictured that I am where I am today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, you know, I've, I just, I've always believed in working hard, mm-hmm. um, you know, living right, um, you know, service, all of those types of things have been important to me. And ultimately treat you know treating people well and you find yourself in a good position yeah you had a clear values and you live by them so that's good um so then what do you think you know for sure uh, until now (laughs) well uh you know covid has certainly made it hard to answer the question of what you know for sure right um you know i will say this what i know for sure is uh is that i've got the the love of my family uh Mm -hmm. the support of my family and um and I know that, you know, for sure that I work for, you know, a company that is worth fighting for and mm-hmm. that will deliver, you know, so we're, you know, we talk about, you know, we're getting ready to turn hundred. How do we set this company up for the next 100 years? And, uh, and I know for sure that we will do that. We will find a way to do that. Amazing leadership, leadership with a purpose. That's what it is. So good to hear. Okay. Yeah. I want to finish with a sentence as I always do. I am optimistic. Yeah, I, look, I'm, I'm optimistic about USAA, right? I, I am optimistic about, about my organization and the way that we are going to evolve and the way that we're going to become more efficient. But I'm optimistic that, uh, that USAA overall is going to do the same thing because we just have too much riding on it, right? Like when, when you've got, uh, you know, we roughly have about 36,000 people in our company and, you know, we are all driven towards making sure that we can take care of the men and women and their families who have served this, com- this country. Um, there is just, there, I am optimistic about our ability to deliver for them. 
Amazing. And thank you so much for serving uh, so many things. Uh, your, not only the family, your community, and your, your company, and the country. <laughs> so it's an honor to actually work with you. And uh, it has been so fun, this podcast. I've been laughing and smiling all the time. My cheeks are hurting. <laughs> yeah. well, I've, okay. had, I've had a really good time with it. Wow, Ross's life is so exciting. One of the kinds that I can even imagine as a movie. What I learned from Ross today is serving as one's purpose is a never-ending source of energy. What is your purpose these days? Thanks for joining us on this episode of Industry Leaders Journey. This series is produced by the Industry Value Chain team at SAP, where we are committed to making the world run better and improving people's lives. For more information and to access all of our podcasts, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Ariba.com.